0: common sense. Yes,
1: sir, they have the cursed and
2: We still don't know who pulled the trigger.
0: And welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired out of the Manhattan North Homicide Squad. Folks, we're going to cover the missing person case of Madeline Kingsbury today. But before we get to that, and there's some, some somewhat new developments in that case. But before we get to that, we just want to mention to our audience that the this is the 10 year anniversary of the boston marathon bombing and the reason we say that or the commemorate that is because i think it sort of outline how good law enforcement is across this great nation and in the boston marathon bombing federal agencies were involved the boston police department did an unbelievable job and then peripheral police departments Small police departments, for example, like Watertown. Watertown saved the lives of potentially hundreds, maybe thousands of people by stopping the Zaneyev brothers dead in Watertown. And as I say, the bravery of law enforcement, you can't underscore it. And the training, uh, how they encountered two really mad dog um, killers and these terrorists And they shot it out with them and they got the better of them, even though one of them was trained in Chechnya, trained in a terrorist camp in Chechnya. Over two years ago, we had Sergeant John McClellan from the Watertown Police Department on our show. And to commemorate that, I just want to play a little bit of this. I'm not totally buffing out, but I almost was in tears when he was telling his story to us on the show. And this was Phil was relatively new to the show. He was on it. We had uh, Cliff Moylan. He was the actor that played Sergeant John McClellan in the movie Patriot Days. And we also had Michelle McPhee, who wrote, is an author and journalist, who wrote a book called Mayhem on the Boston Marathon bombing. So I want to play a little bit of this. We'll bring this up right now, and you get to listen to a little bit of it. But one of the most amazing things about this is what I'm going to show. I'm going to show a little video of it right now, and it was the firefight that this hero— and the bottom left got into and I'm going to uh, put this on the screen and we'll watch a, a little bit of this. And he can after it. He's going to tell us what from his perspective, what the hell happened.
3: We need assistance immediately. We
1: brought a shot fired at officer shot fired at Watertown police officer. My pistol ran out of him. I oh, had to reload. He was still shooting. I reloaded. It turned out I emptied my pistol at him.
4: There's explosions and gunfire going on down the street.
3: dynamite explosives,
1: and up the officers that are responding.
3: I thought we were going to die. I mean, I truly, truly thought that we were going to die. The first. If
2: we're getting an update. There may be uh, guns in the
5: vehicle. You say this was the, the street. Sergeant John McClellan closes in with another Watertown officer, Joey Reynolds, just ahead of him. I come around the corner and the uh,
3: bad guy's out, arms fully stretched out. Reported shots fired at officers turns to stop the vehicle. Shoot at the, at the windshield of uh, uh, Officer Reynolds' cruiser.
5: Shot fired.
3: Town police officers. The bad guy switches from Joey to me and takes one shot, and puts it right through the middle of my windshield from about 100, 120 feet away. We need assistance immediately. Shot fired again. That fired again. We have three units responding. So I, I stood here. I said, "All right, this is what I'm going to do." I jumped up, threw it, and drive. And I just jumped down right here, and I was following it. I was the, the car's the, moving, car's moving, and I'm following it like this, and just shooting right in between here using the door as cover. So I probably took 12, 15 steps with the vehicle, and saw the saw the uh, tree. I shut the door, I ran to the tree, and they think someone's in it the whole time. So you you can see them shooting at it, you can see them throwing the bombs at it. And I'm like, I, I'm like, Jesus this is working. I'm like, I can't believe it. We get a report from the control supervisor that these suspects have tons of dynamite type and with them. And that's owner and a officers that are
1: responding.
5: Now a third Watertown officer, Sergeant Jeff Foublese, responds.
1: And uh if I fired three or four shots. He was positive I was hitting him.
5: But he wasn't going down. In more than three decades on the force, neither man had ever fired his weapon in action until this night. Who who did you hit?
1: Tamil. Did he keep shooting? He came charging up the street, uh, shooting at me. So we're about six feet apart. We ran up that driveway. You're shooting each other? Yes. Six, seven feet apart? Yeah. I emptied my pistol at him and in the meantime, his pistol ran out of ammunition. I didn't know if it jammed at the time or what. He kind of looked at his gun, looked at me, Got frustrated, threw the gun, hit me in my left bicep. He turned, he ran down back onto the street, took a left. I chased after him, and I probably left about four or five feet in the air and came down on the shoulders and tackled him.
3: He had eight bullets in him, and he was still fighting us. The only I had was my empty gun, and I pistol whipped him. I was trying to knock him out. I, I hit him as hard as I could 10, 12 times. Um, couldn't knock him out.
5: The younger Zarnayev, now back in the Mercedes, runs over his brother, just missing Guglielsen. And I'm laying there and
1: I saw the front wheels go over Tamil and I saw him bounce up and underneath the undercarriage a couple of times, I saw him get hung up in the rear wheels and get dragged 20, 25 feet. All officers responded, we have one body pinned down and we have another one on the run, shots fired. All we saw was taillights at that point.
5: Police fired as he fled, they missed him. But a ricochet wounded a transit police officer who had responded to the scene. Once
1: other agencies started showing up, they said to us, "Do you know who you have here?" And we said, "A couple
3: of guys that hijacked <laughs> a car." And he goes, "No, no. Do you know who you got? These are the Boston Marathon bombers." And I'm like, "What?" I'm like, how, "How do you know that?" He's like, "We've been chasing them all night. These are these are them. These are the guys." I'm like,
6: "So is this black hat or
3: is
5: this white hat?" Who's the dead guy? I mean, this is
0: bigger. Than- you know, John, I feel like I got to do this. <laughs> Amazing, man! I feel like if there was a crowd that watched this, they should give you a standing ovation. Un- yeah. Unbelievable! Unbelievable, John! I am so much want to hear your perspective. When you watch this, first of all, before we get into it, how does it make you feel?
3: Uh, it's funny, Bill. I, I, I don't think I saw that since it. It aired years ago, and um geez it is it is kind of surreal, you know it's funny it's um you know, it's just part of my life and 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 I don't look at it like that. It was just like kind of a night on the job, just like you guys, you know, um just so happened who they were and um how it shook out, how long the gunfight was, and how you know
0: unbelievable, how huh, Mike? I just wanted to do that as a salute to the Watertown police and to the three people that lost their lives at the scene of the Boston Marathon, the one police officer who lost his life and the 17 people at the Boston Marathon scene that lost their limbs. And I just, when when I watch this, it makes me proud to have been in law enforcement.
2: Yeah, I remember that that whole week that they were, from the time of, of the Marathon bombing to the time they finally caught Starnayev alive in that boat. Um, you know, I was proud of the job the guys did and I wish I had been retired, but I wish I could have just jumped in a car, got my gun belt, joined them because I would have given anything to be a cop that week because that is pure, you know, hunting down the bad guy going after him, you know, no holds barred. And these guys you knew were just homicidal maniacs and you know, they're, they're a danger to everyone. It was amazing.
0: I love that sergeant on Watertown with 30 years on his gun ran out of ammo. He chased the guy and tack. He took a flying leap. He had 30 years on. He had to be in his middle to late 50s. Yeah, right? and he he takes a dive. He thought he was on TV, and he tackled. Uh, I think it was uh, a of, He was a yeah. bigger brother, and mm-hmm. he was shot eight times, run over by a car, and he was still alive when they brought him to the hospital. They actually operated on him in the hospital. This guy yeah. was a bad, bad guy,
2: you know? That just shows you what adrenaline can do for both law enforcement and the perp. When you've got that much adrenaline pumping and you're not – we had a guy one time in the 4-6 precinct. He was uh, shooting at cops and stuff like that, and he was he was shot a number of times. But no none of the bullets actually hit his chest. He, they were shot in the arm, the hand, a little bit in the leg. And if you don't get, like, a vital organ, that's why cops always shoot to stop center mass. And because if the, like what happened with them, the bullets were hitting him, but nothing ever got like his heart. And so therefore, he still had that fight in him. He was going to fight till he just ran out of blood. That was just an amazing story.
0: Unbelievable. So, folks, that was our tribute to all the officers, all of law enforcement and all of the people that were that died and were injured at the Boston Marathon. Today, if you haven't paid attention to news, today was the 10 year anniversary of that. And, uh, Zocor's on a, was the younger brother. He's on death row right now. Mm-hmm. It could take 25 years to put that little slime bag to, to death. Uh, so, but tonight guys, we're going to be covering, of course, uh, the Madeline Kingsbury case, some new information. We've given a lot of our opinion on this case. Uh, our opinion hasn't changed. We believe there is a person of interest. We hate to use that term. We believe he's mm-hmm. a suspect, uh, so we're going to cover, I'm going to play a little bit of um, of this video right now, pull it up on the screen and just get the segue from what we were just covering to get back into, into this case right now. Uh, let's see, what are we doing here? Okay.
4: Continues around Winona for missing 26 year old mother, Madeline Kingsbury. She was last seen March 31st. And tonight we're learning new details about the father of her children. Our Mary McGuire joining us now after going through some court documents and talking to Maddie's family today. Mary. Well, Kelsey, it's been nearly two weeks since anyone has seen or heard from Maddie Kingsbury, and her family is still desperately trying to find this mother of two. Tonight, we are learning more from court records showing the father of those two children did not have custody of them and fought authorities who tried to remove him from his care after her disappearance.
0: You can flip stuff over. Do we flip stuff?
4: The search for Maddie continues with authorities in both Winona and Fillmore counties conducting smaller scale searches for the missing mother this week. We remain hopeful that we will find Madeline hopefully soon. The 26-year-old hasn't been seen since March 31st after dropping her two kids off at daycare with their father, Adam Fravel. Fravel told police he left her home in Maddie's minivan to run errands, and when he came back later, she was gone her phone, jacket and wallet still inside. Maddie's sister Megan says she knew something was off when she never received a response from a text message that morning. She never responded back um, at that time or since. Fox 9 has obtained court documents that show in the days after Maddie went missing, those children were removed from Fravel's care, who does not have custody. Those records detail, the exposure of the children to criminal activity in the children's home as one of the reasons why and say Fravel was non-cooperative when authorities came to get the kids. Fravel is now fighting that custody order and through his attorney spoke publicly for the first time on Wednesday, insisting he had nothing to do with Maddie's disappearance and that he has been cooperating with law enforcement at every turn. He said law enforcement advised him on April 2nd that they would not recommend he attend press conferences or assist in searches due to safety concerns. But a spokesperson with the BCA tells Fox 9 they aren't aware of any law enforcement advising him not to attend news conferences or search for Maddie family isn't commenting on that statement from Fravel but say her kids are doing well.
7: I'm not at liberty to say whose custody they're in right now but they're they're in good hands and they're safe and they're doing really well.
4: You know a $50,000 reward is being offered for information leading to Maddie's whereabouts. Law enforcement has not named a suspect or a person of interest in this case but do call Maddie's disappearance involuntary and suspicious. Kelsey.
0: So, Mike, we spoke about this, this case, of course. And, you know, in these missing person cases, I don't have, have the exact percentage, but 90% of the time, I believe it is it's as high as that, that it's someone that the missing person knows. And in this case, it's they haven't named him as a person of in- interest, which I hate that term. Right. They haven't named him as a suspect. But us, we in law enforcement know He is suspect numero uno, you know, and they are waiting to collect the evidence that they're going to be able to hopefully to pull the trigger and lock this guy up because I don't think they have their eyes on anyone else. Um, There's certain forensic evidence that they're probably waiting on, i.e. the vehicle doing that forensic check on that, uh, uh, the uh, 2014 uh, van that uh, they were allegedly both driving in when they dropped off the kids. You know, we talk about a great deal of time when we talk about victimology and perpology, you know, victimology, of course, is uh, is Madeline is the victim in this. In my opinion, the perp or the person of interest, so they say, is Adam Fravel, And they need to do, of course, and I'm sure they've done it, a deep dive into his background. Who is this guy, you know? What's he been doing? Some of the things we learned about him, you know, I think that the police and uh, child welfare was concerned enough to take the child, the two children out of his care. Because how would that look if they didn't, they left the kids with him and something horrific happened to the two children? So, but the fact that they pulled the kids back from this, that's telling. That means something. Go ahead, Mike.
2: Yeah, Billy. We know as police officers, you we've done these kind of searches for little children, elderly, abused people, runaway, things like that. And uh, in these kind of cases where there is domestic strife, just specifically talking about domestic strife, and one and one of the people disappears, the husband or, or the mother just suddenly just disappears. No, no text messages. You know, no, no credit card withdrawals. No, you know, you know things like that. Uh, all just dead silence in terms of electronic you know, breadcrumbs of where they're traveling, going around. We know that they're not moving. And uh, logically, you always look to see who was the last person who saw this one alive. That's why timelines say that you can place people at particular locations, at particular times, and when they give you a, uh, an alibi or tell you their story, you can check that out. So logically, he is absolutely, from the first moment this was reported as a missing person, Uh, and then the police went to the house and saw that her wallet and ID and everything's just sitting there. And that's rather strange. Um, he became suspect number one, the first few hours, maybe not, but after the first few hours, absolutely. And then the, uh, they're going to look to the, as you say, the victimology, get those cell phone records. They might take like, like a month. So you have to, we all have to be patient, but what was the text messaging between them? Was there anything nasty? Was there anything threatening? you know, or anything harassing.
0: Mike, Mike, even further back than that, what was their relationship about in these past few months? Right. I mean, relationships don't don't just go bad like a light switch. No. You turn it off, you turn it on. It happens over time. Right. So I'm sure that the family knows, and they're not uh, offering it up to anyone. I'm sure the family knows that the relationship was turning bad Mm -hmm. for months. Look, that was supposedly her last day in that house. She was moving out, moving away from him, right? So was that the catalyst that
2: strange coincidence that caused
0: something really bad to happen? What was the percentage of time that they drove the kids together to daycare? Mm-hmm. Did that ever happen? Apparently, I'm going to show a little bit of the interview with, with the sister. Um, he has his own car. Why was he borrowing her van after You know, after they dropped the kids off my in my estimation, she never returned back to the house. That's my opinion. They dropped off the kids. If that, in fact, happened and they have people that saw them there, she never, ever got back to the house. That is 100 percent my opinion. I think that's you know, he probably just later on dropped off her um, ID, her phone, her ID and all of that stuff. And he did something in between in between that that's the only people that are going to know that right now of course is law enforcement they're right. building a case right now against this guy and you know i know no one's saying he's the guy he's the suspect he's the person of interest but we know that that's the case you know and um you look we're not we're not saying anything that we, we just what are blowing their case by saying this i'm sure many educated people know that in fact he is the person of interest right now
2: yeah, yeah, um, apparently she is very close to her sister. And the morning of her disappearance on the 31st, her sister said in an interview uh, press conference that she'd sent like a humorous text text message and she never got, and she ne- was never heard back from Maddie. And so, you know, that, and that went on all day. So it really set off the alarms. I'm sure the families of every member of that family has uh, given law enforcement their cell phones to see all of the text messages, all of the chats, that Maddie had with her family if they were that close. And so they would know what her feelings were over the past few months regarding uh, Frizzell. And uh, as you said, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. It's not like a light switch coming on and off. There was a deteriorating, deteriorating relationship over m- several months. Uh, she was going to be moving out. He was looking at the end of their relationship also the end of perhaps his being able to uh, interact with his children strange coincidence that that would be the day that she would disappear everyone knows he is suspect number one his attorneys he knows the police chief the family knows i'm very surprised that her family the kingsbury family has been so uh quiet in terms of their relationship with adam uh, and i'm glad they are because everything they're saying All the interviews they've given are to the police. They're confidential and they're not for public discourse. And I think that's the best thing to do. And I salute that family because that is a very strong family. And they are very, very careful of how they how they refer to their, you know, uh, to Frizzell.
0: You know, legal minded friends, who's was a great um, friend of the show. She made a great comment right here. Police off the cuff, this happens here too often. When the partner says they are leaving, it's the most dangerous time. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. In domestic violence cases, uh, when people are breaking up, Mm -hmm. it's almost like I can't tell you how many closed jobs I went on in the NYPD, and Mike can attest to that, too. A closed job was simply when one of the partners, usually the woman, would say, could you escort me back into the apartment? I got to get my clothes and stuff together and he's there. I can't Mm -hmm. go into it, into the apartment alone while he's there. So we would do what was called clothes jobs. And again, when they broke up, you know, that's why it's so difficult in domestic violence incidents is for women because they really need a place to stay. And New York City in their domestic violence program have covered that by having a place that they can stay for free and no one knows where they're staying, especially, of course, uh, the offender in the, in the case. So we understand all of these things. And legal minded friend, thank you for that comment. No, it's, that's it's absolutely very
2: very right on. right
5: on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just go quickly. We we'll go over the timeline. 8 a.m. This was on March 31st. Madeline and her partner, which is Adam Fravel, dropped their five-year-old daughter and two-year-old son at daycare. All right. 8.15, the dark blue 2014 Chrysler Town and Country minivan Madeline Drives returns to her residence. I don't know um, exactly where they're getting that from. Uh, Madeline doesn't show up for work at Mayo Clinic, something Chief Williams says is very unlikely. So the car returned. Did people actually see her get out of the car and go into the house? That's unclear to us. Did she? I mean, th- that's everything. Did she get out if if she didn't get out of the car or he and he just get out of the car and maybe dropped off the possessions because he doesn't want the cell phone. It's going to track where he is or where he's going. That's right. That in the house. And we don't know if she was ever seen getting out of that van. So it could be after 815, between 815 and 130 is when she actually disappeared. And where was, you know, Mike, that's the big question I have, too. And I'm sure the police know this answer. We don't. Where was he driving during all of that time? He was running errands? Where? And that's going to be answered by the GPS in the car. That's why they're forensically uh, processing that car. And if he has a cell phone and his cell phone was on, it's going to hit certain cell sites, even Mm -hmm. though people told me the cell service in that community and the surrounding area isn't what it is. It's not as many cell sites and that type of thing. But where was he? for three and, three hours and 15 minutes. What did he do? Did right. he go shopping? Did he go to a store? Did he go to a doctor's appointment, dentist's appointment? Where was he for three hours and 15 minutes?
2: Yeah, because he's got to come up with something for the police, not just, I was just driving around aimlessly for three hours. That would make no sense at all. He's got to come up with some sort of alibi. I stopped at the Starbucks. I stopped at McDonald's. I got a McMuffin. And then once you do that, or I went to the bank and got and got some money from an ATM machine and I was, you know, way off in a whole other area or somewhere, it is, they're going to be able to verify that. And that's what Phil always talks about is once you do that first interview, you figure out what he said, he's giving you an alibi, and then you check it all out and see what fits and what doesn't. And uh, for him, he's got to come up with something because he knows he just can't walk in and say, oh, I was just... I was just taking a drive out on the countryside for three hours. No, I no, you,
0: you lock them down. You lock them yeah, down. Yeah. I, according to the police, at 10 a.m., this is when they were referring to him as Madeline's partner. Uh, he tells the police he left the residence in her van, t- uh, returned later in the day, and she was gone. Police say there's nothing to suggest she left on foot or in another vehicle. Why did he take her van? Right. Apparently, according to the sister, he owns his own car. Why was he taking her van? That's the million-dollar question, right? Um, right. 10 a.m. through 1.30 p.m., investigators believe a van similar to Madeline's was seen driving on County Road 12 and Highway 43 yep. in Winona County mm-hmm. and then on Highway 43 in Eastern Fillmore County. Right. The van was later found in the driveway of her residence. What was he doing there? What was he doing for three and a half hours in those locations?
2: Yeah, he's he's gotta say something. He just can't sit there and say uh you know, he's gotta come up with something because he says, I'm in, you know, I am uh I've got my fifth amendment rights, I'm not gonna talk to you people at all. Absolutely, he put, he's putting a target on his head for the cops. Um, because you know, he then he knows absolutely he's just messed up he has to say something he has to give some sort of excuse and the cops will deconstruct his excuse and uh and 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 realize that you know once they once they can prove that he wasn't at a bank he wasn't at a starbucks he wasn't at a restaurant he wasn't at a shopping center uh if, during those hours um that is that is uh, as you know uh consciousness of guilt and i love using that term because <laughs> that shows that he's coming up with an excuse. That is just wild, ridiculous, doesn't fit, ha- bears no relationship to reality, and it's all made up. And why would you make up facts when your wife is missing? You know, that so therefore he he has, he's, he's actually boxes himself into a corner because he has to say something that he knows he can't prove.
0: Well, you know, Mike, another reason that when we think of it forensically, why he may have taken her van is because now if he committed a crime in that van, Mm -hmm. he had allegedly permission and authority to use that van. So his DNA is already in that van. Mm -hmm. So does that implicate him? So they have to dig much further. Someone just said, did they uh, spray the van with, uh, I think you meant luminol.
2: Luminol, right. Yeah. Uh,
0: That would be part of the forensic processing of the van. Yes. Mm -hmm. Forensic scientists, detectives, would process that van with great care and to try to find uh, any type of forensic evidence that would implicate uh, the person that did this in this crime. Again, I hate to jump forward and say that this is a crime. And, you know, they said this is actually day 16.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. It
0: was March 31st and today is 4.15. So it's day 16 right now. So... We always want to be optimistic and hope and pray that they recover, Madeline. But your fingers crossed. Yeah, we keep our fingers crossed. But you know something? At the same time, we as police, former police and the police now, they have to look at this realistically. And they have to look at this from uh, an investigative standpoint and see who potentially could be responsible for this. It's not a normal thing for an adult 26 years old to just disappear for 16 days.
2: Yeah, especially a mom. You know, a a dad might want to run away with his new girlfriend or something like that, you know, in in some sort of breakup, but eventually he's going to use his debit cards, you know, credit cards. He's going to have a job somewhere. But a mom leaving her two children, five and two, You know, that's like one in a billion chance that any woman would do that. Any mom would do that. No, no way. No way. Um, So we keep our fingers crossed. We hope for the best. But, you know, you have to be you have to be realistic and uh, you just hope you pray for the family.
0: Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you are in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, what are you waiting for? (laughs) Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, make comments. We love to read your comments. We love to respond to them. And uh, if you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family and they support us. And we greatly appreciate our friends, our family, our subs, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> but we do appreciate them. Folks, uh, Madeline's sister uh, gave an interview today. It was either today or yesterday. But there's some little subtle new information, nothing that's going to really, uh, you know, we use that term smoking gun. Nothing's a smoking gun. But let me play a little bit of it here and we'll just see. And she, again, she's the spokesperson. For the family she's very strong she was very close oh she is very close to maddie and uh let's see listen to what she has to say here
6: hey there carol evans lou raguse here we've been covering the disappearance of madeline kingsbury in winona minnesota maddie disappeared on march 31st after dropping her kids off at daycare so we are now on the 15th day that maddie has been missing and joining me now to talk about it is her sister megan kingsbury Uh, Megan, first of all, our hearts go out to you, everything that your family's having to deal with right now and for the past two weeks. How are you doing right now?
7: You know, I'm hanging in as best as I can. Um, Just kind of waiting with bated breath um, every day until we can figure out where Madeline is.
6: And you've been kind of the face of all these interviews for the family. It must be pretty personally exhausting for you as well
7: um yeah uh it it has been um i've had to take some breaks from it but um i feel like it's kind of the best thing that i can do to advocate and keep keep her name and her face out there so i'm happy
6: to do it okay i'd like our our listeners and viewers to get a better idea of the person that maddie is um where did you guys grow up and where did maddie go to high school
7: Uh, we grew up in Farmington, Minnesota and uh, Madeline went to Farmington high school down there. She was a cheerleader and very involved in a lot of things with her school.
6: Okay. And then, uh, uh, just tell me a little bit more about your family. Uh, she's a younger sister to you.
7: Yep. Um, she's the youngest. There's three siblings. Um, so Madeline, myself, and then we have an older brother named Steven.
6: Okay. And,
0: you know, folks, um, just just keep in mind that um, the family has put up $50,000 for information to, in, in order to find Madeline or leading to or an arrest of a, a potential suspect that may have done something bad. Don't forget, the police said this is suspicious and involuntary. You know, we've heard those terms, but police don't like to talk with those terms unless they have... Real proof that, in fact, this is suspicious and her disappearance is involuntary. So we always have to keep that on our mind as they're talking like, you know, Madeline's going to come home tomorrow. You know, this is suspicious and involuntary. That is a crime. You know, they're spelling out a crime was committed. Mike. Mike.
2: Yeah, it's an abduction. At the very least, it's an abduction, and we hope nothing further than that. But uh, a woman, you know, anyone taken um, and abducted and deposited somewhere, held somewhere, like a hostage kind of situation, that's a kidnapping. That's an abduction. Uh, that's a very, it's a very potentially violent crime because of a person trying to escape. They could hurt themselves, uh, trying to restrain them. They uh, they could be hurt. So uh, this, this, uh Adam Frizzell, um, as suspect number one, um, people have to realize that that he is a very um, dangerous person. Even if he might not have any sort of previous criminal record, uh, what he is strongly suspected of doing is a potentially very violent crime.
0: Absolutely. You know, folks, uh, people in the chat keep asking about uh, how are the children, the kids, there's a five-year-old and a two-year-old um they were taken by child protective services Mm -hmm. now Madeline's side of the family uh I believe according to the sister they were allowed to visit them the children are doing very well uh they were shielded from uh from Adam he's not allowed to visit them He's, he's he was not the court order basically took custody and visitation away from him so I think that um that speaks a little bit as to this case also. Uh, the uh, the other thing, he had spoken and said that he has cooperated with the police and, and he they told him not to help in the press conferences or the searches for Madeline. And apparently uh, the police said that was never told to him. So he's making up some things like that. Um, look, we want to also... Thank the community here. This community is amazing. 2,000 people or more, actually more than that, have volunteered to search for Madeline. That's a very strong community. That's a caring community. And, uh, you know, now hopefully, you know, there'll be some targeted searches as more information. I'm sure they're getting hundreds and hundreds of tips. But these cases are painstakingly difficult. They really are. They're not easy. And we've watched these cases like these across the nation. You know, uh, Gabby Petito, uh, Summer Wells. Summer Wells has never been found. You know, Gabby Petito was only found because some actually content creators that had a dash cam camera drove through the park that her van was parked in and they spotted it. And they gave that information to law enforcement, and law enforcement searched that area and found the Gabby Petito's uh, her body. So, all of these things Maya Malette, same thing, over a, probably a year and a half ago, uh, she disappeared. Her husband's been arrested. He's facing, he's going on trial for, they never found her. You know, again, these cases sometimes. They have to prosecute them on a circumstantial basis with circumstantial evidence. And we say it ad nauseum. I use the word ad nauseum, ad nauseum. Uh, we say it ad nauseum that uh, that circumstantial evidence, when there's a lot of it, it can be very, very powerful evidence. Mike, you want to speak upon that?
2: Yeah, Uh Circumstantial evidence, direct evidence is when someone actually implicates themselves in the crime, they actually put themselves at the scene, or they actually um, uh, confess and make incriminating statements, or there's a video uh, of them uh, committing the crime, or there's an eyewitness that says, that, that can testify this, uh, credibly that they saw, the, say, the robbery, the homicide, or the, the assault take place. Other than that, everything else is circumstantial. Uh, DNA evidence is circumstantial. Uh, Fingerprints at the crime scene are circumstantial. Um, Owning a firearm of the same caliber that was used to kill someone. It's all circumstantial evidence, but uh, it is not weak evidence. It is very important. So almost all crimes have mostly circumstantial evidence with a little bit occasionally of direct evidence, but there are crimes that have been prosecuted where there's absolutely no direct evidence and it's all circumstantial and all circumstantial evidence is different from direct evidence is that all it asks is for the jury to make a logical inference of guilt from the presentation of the evidence at trial. And so so long as it logically uh, makes sense to the jury, uh, for instance, there's a report, uh, a witness saw someone run into a house, uh, they heard shots fired and then they saw the person run out of the house. This is the example I always give to my students. That's not direct evidence of guilt. Their testimony would not be direct evidence of guilt because they actually didn't see it happen. They heard it. So that circumstantially, they can figure out, uh, a jury could figure out, well, the person was seen running in. Their, their shot was, uh, they heard what sounded like a shot. They saw someone run out the back of the house. That's strong circumstantial evidence of guilt. So in, in this case, it, it, and in a lot of other cases, it's mostly circumstantial evidence. And um, that's not to be uh, disparaged in any way. Uh, people say, oh, circumstantial evidence is not strong evidence. It's not reliable. Oh, yes, it is. Absolutely. Fingerprints, DNA, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, receipts from a, a restaurant, receipts from a, a Starbucks, uh, ATM receipts. All of that stuff puts people in certain places at certain times. And that helps, you know, limit. A, a suspect's ability to uh, wangle their way out of uh, out of um, a, um, a charge or a conviction for a criminal act, and and I just want to just mention, to Chris, really quickly, about the about the Frizell. Yes, he has been cooperative with with the police. When the police ask him questions, he responds. And he probably responds with an attorney. So yes, technically, he is fully cooperating with the police. Uh, the fact is that I think his an attorney, and if I'm the defense attorney, I'm going to tell him: Do not talk to your former in-laws. Do not talk to anyone about this case. Do not go on that search because you might say something. Don't ha- hold the press conference like Scott Peterson in the Lacey Peterson case, from like 15 years ago. Don't do that sort of thing because you may come across poorly. You may say something poorly. So yeah, he is not going to talk to anyone except the police, and he's not going to talk to the police except in the presence of his
0: attorney. 100%. I'd just like to uh, note to our audience that um, basically all the evidence against Alec Murdoch was circumstantial Mm -hmm. evidence. And we all know where he is right now, right? He's in prison for two life sentences. The other thing is I hear people or see people in the chat talking about, oh, it's impossible to convict for murder without a body. That is not true. That is so not true. It's been done numerous times. Uh, There's a case from New York in 1985, and I forget the doctor's name right now, but uh, this doctor killed his wife, threw her in the trunk of his car in a duffel bag, drove her to a private airport, threw her in his private plane, took off, flew over the Atlantic Ocean, and dumped her into the Atlantic Ocean, never to be found. He was convicted, I believe it was 10 or 15 years later, and got uh, 20, 20 to life. Yeah. He's actually up for parole. And at his parole hearing, he admitted to doing exactly the murder the way the prosecutor said he did. So uh, just unbelievable. K. Culp, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. This is so great. Hope mom's case will be on her someday. I'm not sure um, exactly what you meant by that, but thank you so much. The 999 super sticker. Guys, we want to like stay, keep up on this case because these cases do move slowly. And it's difficult for folks that have been following this to really accept the fact that the police are keeping things so close to the vest that no new information is really coming out. But the police are doing a great job. That's what they should be doing. They don't want to get all this stuff out there because then it could be used by the bad guy, whoever the bad guy is, to thwart their evidence. And that's why they're doing a great job of keeping all the information they have quiet. And that's what they should be doing.
2: Yeah. Billy, they're, uh, the only thing that could happen is if they get confidential information, if they leak it out to someone, say a reporter, a local reporter in Minnesota, Winona, Minnesota, for a scoop on a story... It could only help the defense because it could give the defense an inside view of, into what the police are thinking. And if there is going to be a prosecution of Mr. Fizell, the, um it gives the defense the ability to see what a theory of prosecution would be at trial. So, it, it, uh, you know, all of those little tidbits of information leaking to, to the public uh, through a newspaper can only help the defendant. It never helps almost never helps the prosecution or helps the police at all. The best thing people can do is, uh, keep looking for her, uh, again, check trail cameras, go over your property. Um, if it's near a road, uh, you know, check streams on your property, anything you can think of, uh, that's the best thing that the public can do. And, um, you know and that's the best service because the you know this is a kind of case this is a manhunt kind of case you want to re- recover madeline you want to find her and cops will work you know 24 7 until this is over but uh, they will find her and and i'm sure um he will be made to uh, answer for justice
0: absolutely
6: let me play a little more of this interview uh, so where in winona does she live is it like in town or in the country
7: um it's it's pretty close to town. It's kind of right on the border of Winona and Goodview.
6: Okay. So does it like at is it a town home?
7: Yes, it's like a it's like a side by side so they have a connected wall with their neighbor.
6: Okay. When you're there does it feel like you're in a city or in the country?
7: Um It feels more of like the country for sure. I'm from Minneapolis, so it's a lot different from where I live. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely more of a country feel.
6: Okay. And, uh, from what I understand, she was living with the father of her two children. Yes. And, um, you know, he, he's released a statement in the last week. So his name is out there now, which is Adam Fravel. Um, is it, Is it fair to say that they were no longer dating? Um, I know that he's been referred to as the boyfriend, and I might have done that accidentally. But is it fair to say that they were no longer boyfriend, girlfriend at the time?
7: Yes, that's
6: correct. Okay. And Maddie was looking for a new place to live in the near future?
7: Yeah, she she still wanted to stay in the area. Um, You know, her kids go to daycare and stuff.
0: So, Mike, and to our audience, there's some new information that came out, is that right there, uh, it's basically being acknowledged that there was uh, some trouble in their relationship. In fact, they weren't together any longer, I I guess, even though, which is even probably the worst thing that could happen, is that you're not together, but you're still living together. The the stress uh, that that creates on top of having two young children is, uh, is unbelievable, you know? So, uh, these are a couple of things that she said in this interview that we learned now that we were asking these questions the other day. And now at least we have answers to it.
7: Stuff around here. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think she was looking still in Winona or in good
6: view. Okay. And so you mentioned that she worked often from home. Does that does that for her consist of like a lot of like checking in with meetings with people or is she kind of like really working on her own at home?
7: Um, I think it's a mixture of both. Um, she, they, they use Microsoft teams. And so it would show when she was online and people would call her message her often. She did a lot of emails and then, yeah, she did a lot of stuff on her
6: on her own too. And how often on a normal day do you communicate with her? a lot. Mm
7: -hmm. (laughs) Um, I work from home as well. So, I mean, sometimes we FaceTime and just kind of co-work together. Um, but I, yeah, I would hear from her every single day, at least probably
6: two or three times. Okay. And she has two kids. Uh, how old are they?
7: Um, her daughter, Eliana is five and her son Noah is
6: two. Okay. And, um, I mean, that's, just heartbreaking for, for everyone to imagine, but how how are the kids doing right now? Um,
7: you know, they're, they're doing really well. Um, they're in a safe place and, in really good
6: hands. So they're, they're doing great. Okay. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what Maddie's normal routine would be on, on a day where she, you know, gets up, gets the kids ready. And then what happens from there?
7: Yeah, yeah. So she'd get up, get the kids ready to go. Um, her daughter Eliana would go to a preschool a couple days a week. Um, and then the other days they would both go to the same daycare. Um, so they'd get dropped off at daycare, and then she would come back home and just kind of be working for the day. Um she might run an errand or two in the afternoon. She loves Target, so she'd go get stuff at Target. Um but yeah, she would pretty much be home and then go pick up the kids, and after that, I mean, she'd be with the kids all the time. Um, with the warmer weather out, um, you know, they go to the park and stuff. Um, but but yeah, it her her days revolved around those kids when she wasn't working.
6: Now, police have made it clear that they believe that her disappearance was involuntary and suspicious. And I just want to help people understand a little bit more about that. Can you talk about what Maddie, it's pretty clear that Maddie had plans, right? Both short-term and long-term. Can you kind of go into that a little bit?
7: Yeah, so I mean, on the 31st, the next day, I mean, she was going to come to my house with her daughter, Ellie, um, for the weekend. But I mean, as far as like other plans, you know, more long-term, she was a a grad student um, at the U of M to get her master's in public health. Um, It's difficult, first of all, just to get into that program. And then, um, you know, it it definitely signifies that she wanted to further her career. Um, She was looking at possible um, other promotions, job opportunities within Mayo Clinic as well. so she she definitely had some plans um, to to get to some higher places, I'll say.
6: And is it fair to say that you know Maddie about as well as anybody?
2: Mm-hmm.
6: Okay. And so I just want to make it clear so people understand that, in your mind, the chance of her running off or being involved in some sort of drug thing or anything like that, it's about a 0% chance.
7: Yeah, I- a negative chance. Um, yeah, no way.
6: Okay. Um, now I I know you've gone through this so many times, but just kind of take us through the, the day of the 31st from, from your vantage point.
7: Yeah. So, um, we, we both get up really early for work and she's up early with the kids. So, um, I will typically hear from her before, 8am sometimes. Um, I had sent her a funny photo the night before we went on, um, a trip together last summer, just a long weekend to Rhode Island. Um, so it was just a funny picture from there. Uh, she didn't see it until that morning of the 31st and she just kind of sent her response back, you know, LOL. And, you know, um, and I had, had responded to it, you know, just kind of general, like chit chat, um, And that was at like 8.15 that she sent me a message. And then that was the last that I heard from her. Um, And I didn't hear from her the rest of the day. I didn't really think about it. I know she's busy. Um, And then my mom reached out to me uh, probably around 6 p.m. asking if I had heard from Madeline um, because my mom had sent some messages and I think maybe tried to call her Um, throughout the day with no response. And that just isn't normal. Um, And I was like, nah, you know, she's, she's fine. She's probably busy with the kids. Um, But I did send her a few messages. Hey, mom's concerned. Can you call her, text her back? Um, I didn't get a response to that. Uh, So a couple of hours went by and um, I tried to call her a few times. Um, It rang, but went to voicemail, sent her a few other messages um and it was about seven o'clock I reached out to some friends of hers nobody else had heard from her um and that's when we kind of started to get
0: you know interesting well so
2: far
7: he usually talks right. to her regularly too he right. hadn't heard he from. Got her. Of
2: it completely so
7: at that point, especially because she was supposed to come to my house the next morning with um, with her daughter, Ellie, um, there were definitely some alarm bells going off because it just was so unlike her. Um, and then just as it got later into the night and, you know, she still wasn't responding or picking up her phone, um, you know, pretty quickly we wanted to file a missing persons report because um, it's, it's just such...
0: You know, Mike, uh, that's quick to file a missing person report for an adult, unless you really right away sense some foul play right away. Yeah, so, I remember
2: in the, in the NYPD, it had to be something where they might have been a, 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 an elderly person with dementia, a mentally handicapped child, uh, someone who's expressed some sort of feelings of danger. Um, a drug addiction, uh, mental health issues. Other than that, they wanted you to wait longer, but uh, that was fairly quickly, fairly quickly. Yeah, done. and
0: so my point to bringing that up is that they must have convinced the police that no, she's in danger. Right. And so, what did they tell the police? Because you know how the police are wait, she's 26 years old, she has the right to go where she wants to go. She's an adult. She's probably out partying, you know, they would say all these different things. But the family obviously convinced the police that she was in danger, that no, she is in fact, she is indeed missing. Right. So and the police right away got on this. So what my whole point in this is, what does the family know? And what does the police know that we don't know and the general public doesn't know?
2: Yeah, they know all the victimology that's gone on, and all the relationship that has gone on that uh, happens behind closed doors with couples, and with when they talk to their siblings, with their parents over the course of a couple of months. Uh, you know, the public might say, "Oh, they're they're just seem like a nice couple down the street there." Yeah, way over there, nice couple. But when you find out, that there may be some sort of verbal abuse, physical abuse. There's acrimony. There's a breakup impending. Uh, she was absolutely on the very uh, last couple of days of staying there. She was looking to move on and it must've been a very, very uh, concentrated and maybe uh, uh, difficult atmosphere to stay in when the two of them are in a home. And he's looking at the clock. Uh, he's looking at the clock. He's looking at the calendar saying, you know, this is it, you know, she's moving out and she's got the support of her family. And, um, and so therefore there's this deadline and um, the the police know all of the uh, secrets about their relationship right now that the family knows that the public. Absolutely.
0: Doesn't. You know, Mike, one of the other things that I just want to point out is Madeline was, is only 26 years old. Mm-hmm. She has a five year old and a two year old. Therefore, she was probably with Adam when she was between the ages of 20 and 21 years old. Right. When you figure it out. Right. Mm-hmm. The timeline right. of just being pregnant for nine months, having a five year old, yeah. So yeah. she was between 20 and that's a young age to be mm-hmm. involved uh, in a relationship like that and to have children. I mean, to me, it is, I guess, years ago in my parents' era, it, that wasn't my mother got married when she was 18, but uh, that was a whole different era. In this day and age, it's that's that's young, right?
2: Yeah, and remember. She that's about the time you're a senior or junior in college, she was able to get her bachelor's degree and get into a very respected uh, um, master's program, very demanding master's program. So she had a tremendous intellectual ability and the the ability to organize her life and um, get, you know, work your nose to the grindstone. And uh, she did it and she did it at a very young age and she was going to go places in her life and perhaps that spurred a lot of um, resentment um, you know uh, with her with her with mr Frizzell, uh, perhaps and um, led to the breakup she was leaving her older life behind and she was going to be moving on with her kids and she wanted him to be a smaller perhaps a smaller part of their life
0: absolutely Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic, fantastic, a fantastic, fantastic defense attorney. Uh, you can reach Joe on his cell at 718 514 3855. Email him at joe at com. His website is jmurray-law.com. Not only is Joe a fantastic attorney, he's so busy now, I don't think he needs this ad anymore, but don't tell him that. (laughs) He's so busy, but he's also a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Story show, and he used to be a frequent guest till he got too busy in his law practice. Now, every time we call him, he, he can't come on the show, but we appreciate him a great deal. You know, folks... This is a tragic case, you know, and we're we're trying to give you our knowledge, our depth of our knowledge of what we think is going to happen. And we think the police are really on the right track. And I think that they they got this case in hand. And we hope that, of course, that there's a happy ending to this. Realize it's been 16 days, right? Mm -hmm. This happened on March 31st. Today is the 15th. Normally it would be income tax day, but they moved it to the 18th this year. So if you see some feds knocking on your door, it won't be till Wednesday, right?
2: That's right. Don't <laughs> but, answer. Uh,
0: yeah, don't, don't ask, don't tell if you didn't pay your taxes. But That's right. folks, you know, again, uh, the heartbreaking case. Uh, I have some people in, in that community that reach out to me uh, by email just, and we we hope and pray for the family, of Madeline Kingsbury and the community. I know that the community of Winona um, Minnesota is taking this very difficult also you know very tough very tough to the for the community and I think that the, the police may have said there's I don't know they, they they don't like to say this because they said that in the Idaho case there's no danger to the community and right they, they got to be very careful about saying that but um, these cases are usually um, someone close to the to the person uh, that was put in this danger. And that's all I'll say. I don't want to uh, speak in definitive terms. Mike, we've been on for about an hour. Final words.
2: Final words. I think the, uh, the the your viewers should know that the police are doing everything possible. A lot of the evidence that we gather nowadays uh, is electronic and it's scientific. And it's going to take quite a while, maybe a month to get all of that information and then go through it. Remember the Idaho case with Kohlberger? Uh, everybody was like, oh, is it a cold case? And we could see that it's not. And this case isn't going to go cold. I'm sure the uh, Winona County Prosecutor's Office, the district attorney, is working hand in hand with the police and guiding them every step of the way. They've executed warrants. Uh, they are doing everything by the book. And just because something doesn't happen in 48 hours, Um, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen and a perpetrator of a crime is going to get away with it. Not at all, not at all. So, uh, be patient and just, uh, keep the faith in the police, uh, doing the job that they're trained to do. And they are very eager and they cannot wait to solve this crime.
0: Absolutely. Mary Gold, thank you so much for the $15 super sticker. You're from California. And you thanked us. Thank you so much, gentlemen. No, thank you. Thank you very much to uh, for supporting Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. You know, folks, we do our best to try to handle these cases with uh, sensitivity, with expertise, with experience, with knowledge, and to impart that to you. But, you know, you also have to realize we sometimes have the roughness or the coarseness, maybe I'll use that word, of cops. You know, we've seen a lot of bad things over our lifetime in law enforcement. And we know things and we can interpret things, uh, judge, maybe judge things, maybe too quickly based on what we see in an investigation. And like all of you guys, we hope and we pray uh, that Madeline Kingsbury is found alive and, but you know, again, 16 days, um, law enforcement is doing everything possible there's been thousands of people searching for Madeline. Uh, the fact that her relationship was breaking up, the fact that a judge issued an order that her, I don't even know what to refer to him as. Adam Favelle, uh is not allowed to see the children right now. All of those things are not good signs. And they're almost, we're going to hear very shortly that he is a suspect. He is a person of interest, you know, and um, but we we don't want to be the ones that do. we've already said that probably earlier than we should have, because we've seen these cases before. We've seen hundreds of these cases before, thousands of these cases, maybe. And, um, you know, two and two equals four, you know. And uh, again, we, we hope that we hope and we pray that this comes to a happy conclusion to, to this Great family, the Kingsbury family. You could see how they've stood behind their sister, their daughter. Uh, and, you know, she was a real, she is a real achiever in this life, you know, achieving what, getting a bachelor's degree with two young children, going for a master's degree and a very difficult area, too. You know, in sciences, it's not, it's certainly not an easy, easy coursework, you know. So uh, she's a, uh, she, she, she would be helping people with her life and uh, we hope that she's found alive and can continue to do that folks I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight we sort of just decided I think at like 730 at night I gave Mike a quick call and I said uh, Mike what are you doing anything and he goes no you know I'm glad that I have co-hosts that have no life like me, you know, so <laughs> at any time I could just reach out to them at a moment's notice. I said, I'll go on the air. I love doing it. You know? Yeah. So that that was Mike tonight. I didn't want to call Phil because I think he was on a cannoli run to Brooklyn. So uh, I don't want to interrupt him. It's a, a busy night for him. So, but uh, folks, we're going to stay with this story. Um, again, I have some friends in that area they reach out to me by email. I appreciate if you hear anything. Or, and I don't, believe me, I don't tell police secrets. If it's something that's meant to be only heard by the police, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put it out there if they don't want it out there. So just be confident in that. Folks, again, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Have a great uh great night tonight and a, a great Sunday tomorrow and God bless.
2: Good night, everyone.
6: One episode just ain't enough